on today's episode. One of my favorite stories, and who the hell knows if it's true or not, it's from Art and Fear, that, that book by David Bales, I think, and Ted Orlean, I think is his name. Um, and they tell this story about a pottery class, and half the class is told, make the best pot you can and turn it in at the end of the, at the, end of the semester. The other part of the class is, you, you will be, the other people will be graded on the quality of their pots, of the pot they bring at the end. You, y'all will be graded on how many pots you can make. So make, and of course what happens at the end is the people that make as many pots as they can, those pots tend to be of a higher quality of people <laughs> who just work on like one pot, right? So um, I, this sound, it sounds like counterintuitive, but for me, for example, when I was working on Keep Going, I told myself, I'm going to blog every day again, like the old days. I'm just going to do a blog post every day. And sure enough, like, I ended up with so much, so many good posts that I couldn't fit them in the newsletter some hmm. weeks. You know, there were, there were you, you know, so it's like, it's just that repetition, you know, doing something. So I, I think just setting, I think it's about frequency. I think frequency often leads to consistency, if that makes sense. Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. I remember getting uh, this little book from a friend of mine uh, that had on the title, Steal Like an Artist. And I remember flipping through it and just thinking how powerful it was uh, of just a framework. And uh, the author behind that, Austin Kleon, is someone who I have become the biggest fan of. And I was so grateful that he was able to stop by and chat with us a little bit about the mindset today that he sees so important. And I thought some of the biggest takeaways from Austin, who is the author of Steal Like an Artist, Keep Going and Show Your Work, really was this, think about your verbs. And what he means by that is think about the things that you do that people react to, that they like, that you enjoy. And whether that's writing, whether that's interviewing, whether that's creating, whether it's painting, whatever it might be. And Austin even showed us some live demos of how he'd been doing some examples recently of creating collages and sharing them on Instagram. His insights about wanting every one of us to stay like a perpetual student was so powerful. And I think this idea of creating habits around creating was so great. We learned a lot about his process of writing and developing a book and why the recent book, Keep Going, was so important, particularly in those times of getting stuck and stopping ourselves. So if you're looking for ways to understand how to become a creator, not by trying to do something big, but just by documenting your journey, you'll learn a lot from Austin. Uh, he is a great, uh, great person to learn from. I was super fascinated to hear more about him, especially as someone who loves his work and has oftentimes been sharing his, his images on Instagram and uh, social media. But remember, think about your verbs and particularly document what your verbs are, what you enjoy doing, whether it's photography, whether it's pictures, whatever it might be, writing, document those, and that's how you become a perpetual creator. So today, Austin Cleon, author of Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Keep Going, joins us to share us how you can find your verbs. I am a messy guy and I would show the over this way, but I, my wife would yell at me. So do you ever, do you ever go through and like clean this thing? Do you like fix this mess or do you just basically live in it or how, how does it like retain its messiness, cleanliness, order, disorderness? Something that I believe strongly in is tidying as a 
procrastination method. <laughs> so, so I like to save tidying for when I'm burnt out or impasse or something with the work. Yep. And then, and then I just tidy till I get bored and I'm ready to work again. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, know, so you know, Tucker Max once said, he said, he said, if you want to, if your house is messy, just tell yourself, I'm going to start, I'm going to start writing today. <laughs> that's the perfect yeah. way to get the house spotless. No, that's dead on. If you need your taxes done, just say you're going to start writing. There's like <laughs> a long list of things I'd rather do than write a book. So <laughs> it's good to keep things undone around nice. the house. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Well, yeah, the, the same, I think. And, and it's one of those things that I think I find myself, if you're in this constant state of a little bit of messiness and then it's mm-hmm. like spikes and like cleans up, then it's also one of those things like, well, I can't use that as an excuse anymore. <laughs> so, yes. Very- even my desk, people are always horrified when I... There, there seems to be like two reactions. Like people are all people are either horrified when my, when they see my desk, or they're like, "Oh, I thought it was just me." Like even my desktop's messy. Let me see if I can. Let me see if this thing will work here. I have a camera that'll show you my desktop. Even even my <laughs> desktop is a mess. Look at this. It's <laughs> disgusting. You do. You, you, yeah. It's a good thing you have so newspapers like, on. It feels like that's your jam. So you should have some newspaper yeah, stuff sure. on. I've got newspapers and all kind. Of, I've got all kinds of junk on here. I got a glue stick that doesn't have a cap on it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I was like, yeah. But I, I, the way I feel about mess is that I don't. I like the. I like the studio to be a collage. Mm-hmm. I like the mess because every once in a while something will butt up against something else and it'll make a third thing which is the magic of collage and stringing things together so that's the that's the that's my justification (laughs) listen i think make it your justification Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I have th- this is the book that I told you. I think is the inspiration for this entire program here of helping people show their work a lot behind it. Excellent. Um, but I want to actually start with your current book. The current book that just that came out here, Keep Going, yep. was one of the interesting ones because 2020 has been such a cluster f in so many different ways. There it is, right there, exactly. That book was an interesting one because it was different a little bit than as you describe in some of the the other books you've done here. 2020 has been this cluster. Why is it important to remind people, especially today, that to keep going? Today or <laughs> it's funny when I started the book. Let me think about this. It, it was four years ago, basically. I watched the country kind of splinter. It was already splintered, but it felt like things hit this kind of fever pitch. Yeah. And most of the creative people I know, creative people need a lot of time. They need a lot of attention. They, yep. they need to free up their resources. And everyone's resources were getting sucked up by the tone of the country and everything. And so there was that, which is the easiest reason how to stay creative in chaotic times. But then... I was really pushed by my publisher to include the good times Hmm. too. (laughs) And I think where that came from for me was more like I'd been doing creative stuff for a living for 10 years for about a decade. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, when I was in college, I remember a cartoonist I looked up to saying, give yourself a decade. Hmm. Like it's going to take a decade Hmm. to get anywhere close to where you want to get. And 
So I'd been doing creative work for a decade and I was like, I just don't know. Do I have another book in me? Can I do this again? It's after every book. It's like, can I do this again? Yeah. And so that's really the two things that sort of came together with the book. It's like tone, the, like the, the climate, literally the climate and then the climate in a general sense. And, and then the career thing. So right. it's like the wider world. And then there's just the problem of maintaining a creative career over time. And so mm-hmm. those two things, the kind of timeliness and the timelessness of trying to have a career, those sort of things came together and became the book. But in a, this is, I don't know why I'm answering this in such a long, <laughs> end of the day here. It's sundowning. I'm literally sundown. For me, it was like, the, the other thing was, this is the first book I wrote for myself. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds weird, but like the other books were all written my first poetry book, that's an outlier. That was a poetry collection. Mm-hmm. But the Still Like an Artist, that was written for me in the past, like when mm-hmm. I was first starting out. And then Show Your Work was for like the people around me who were like, how are you doing this? Like, how do you get your stuff out there? And then this book was really like, I need this book to exist in the world. I right. need this pep talk for myself. So that's that was my really long-winded answer. <laughs> it's great. It's good. Very simple question. <laughs> does it does it surprise you've become in some ways this like sort of spokesman or voice for this creative class that is out there? Did you ever expect to have this impact? Because again, your timing has been one where we've seen this rise of the creative class and your sort of voice co- corresponding. Was it surprising to you? Yeah, I'm surprised when anyone reads anything that I do. <laughs> I certainly didn't set myself up for that. Yeah. I, that's not how I see myself, but I, I think that the reason people like my stuff is that I'm just this guy trying to do it, mm-hmm. and this is what I've learned, and I'm just letting you look over my shoulder. Hmm. That's been my MO from day one. I'm still basically doing the same thing I did 10 years ago when I was starting out. I was, I'm just sharing what I'm learning. And I think that for me, that's a, that's an ethos. That's partly me trying to push against any kind of guru or expert thing that people try to put on me. Yep. I think the most interesting artists and creative people are people that don't know what they're doing. Like even if they get to a certain level, they find some sort of new challenge mm-hmm. where they don't know what's that. Not knowing, I believe strongly, is the state that that good work is made in. And so I kind of I try to keep a perpetual amateur, a student approach to what I do. But it's interesting the rise of the creative class. I've I thought about this a lot since the election. Not to. It's on everyone's minds, but I would say if there people ask me sometimes, what's the thing that really made your career? And I would say the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, because Hmm. when the ACA came in place, I was able to quit my job and do this full time and I'm Hmm. still doing it. And people, that's not a very sexy answer for people, but I'm like the fact that I can buy health insurance for my family. And that's a big, that and I think that a lot of the rise of the creative class stuff that's been going on for a long time. But for me, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, sorry. I, I went on a tangent. there. That's great. No, I, I, listen, I, 
It's interesting too. You've got this, you were talking about this idea of this amateur mind and curious mind, that sort of thing. This group of people, all of them, I would say, wrestle through those same things. In some ways, you've gone through the whole funnel to the out the other side where people say, hey, this is good. But these folks are in the middle of that, hey, imposter syndrome, all that sort of stuff behind yeah. it. How do you still to this day work yourself through that process to basically get yourself through that imposter amateur mindset to be able to get something out there that people can see? Years ago, I read about Rolling Stone magazine when they first started it, mm-hmm. and they, they put them, I don't remember the whole story, but I remember their attitude once it got popular. They said, holy crap, people are reading this. <laughs> and then they turned around and said, let's pretend they're not. Huh. <laughs> and I think that that kind of, in some ways, I, I think for me, I got what I wanted by operating in this very particular way, Mm. which was to follow my nose, to just share everything I was interested in. And people either came around along for the ride or they didn't. Mm. And I think what messed me up probably a couple of years after Steel Like an Artist came out was all of a sudden I was like, I'm this big author now. I shouldn't blog every day. I should write big, long medium posts and, and like only, only speak when I have something that I've brought down from the mountain or whatever <laughs> idea I had. And, and it really messed me up. Hmm. It really, it was five years in between when I did Show Your Work and Keep Going. And I think a lot of that was getting hung up on oh, what is an author like? Mm-hmm. Oh, what would an author do? It's, don't worry about being an author. Worry about the things that you did when you were first getting started mm-hmm. that led to the what you wanted, which is writing a lot, reading a lot, drawing a lot, and sharing a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's my big picture advice to people these days is to really, job titles will mess you up. You start thinking of yourself as a very particular noun and what will really serve you the best is thinking about your verbs, right. thinking about, thinking about the, the things you like to do and the things that people are responding to. Mm-hmm. Because I believe very f- strongly that sometimes an artist doesn't have the best or a creative person or whatever, doesn't have the best idea what they should be doing. I think there's a dance in between what you want to do and what the world responds to and that's your career and doing that dance. I think that's part of the work. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Totally does. And I think it's interesting too, this process a little bit, I think all of us in some ways go through of like doing the work and being okay with the doing part of it is such a big part of it. You were, I saw an interview with Chase Jarvis, who, who's actually, I'm a big fan and a friend that casually know. Mm-hmm. You said like this question of like really digging into this idea of knowing your right now verb, like diving into that one. How do you encourage people to get into that? What's your verb right now? And it's like to get yeah. that question for you. Yeah, that's a great, how do you get into it? I think you think about what, I mean, for, for me, it's what makes, what are you doing when your head, your heart, and your hands feel united? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do when, what are you doing when your mind and your spirit or whatever word you want to put on it mm-hmm. and your body seem to be vibrating. Yep. And I think people know that. Yeah. It's very hard to 
there's something that you do that those all those things are happening. You, you know what I mean? And I think that those types of things you need to pay attention to when it's really cooking. For me, that was always like, not necessarily when I was writing, but when I was like putting words together with mm-hmm. pictures. And then when I was blogging, I always loved blogging. I always loved tinkering on my website. I always loved that kind of thing. When are you cooking? When are the strings vibrating? That to me is really, and what is the real work that you're doing? Because I think that even if you're making art, work is about service in a lot of ways. What are you, what's the service you're providing in, mm-hmm. in a sense to others? And when I first started out, it was like, I'm reading a lot and I'm sharing these little nuggets or these little takeaways or stuff that I've learned and I'm serving it up for other people. Mm-hmm. Because when I first started out, I was like, what do I have to offer anyone? I'm like, my own work isn't that good yet. Mm-hmm. And I knew that. But mm-hmm. I was like, I'll point to the work of other people. Hmm. And that was like how I got started. And then when I had something that was good enough, I had this audience already. Sorry, I, I dodged around that question. But I think it would benefit some people to literally keep a little log as your week goes on and you start writing down all the verbs you did that day. What did you literally do? Hmm. What are the actions that you took that day? Whether it was clicking or scrolling or or typing or whatever, what are those things that you do? And I think what were the ones that made you feel like you were getting closer to where you wanted to be? Yeah. And that's what you should, those are your verbs, I guess. There's a, there's a startup there somehow. Yeah. No, there's a startup friend of mine actually who did that. He was trying to figure out his next startup company. And what he did is he had a notebook and he set his alarm on his phone for every 15 minutes to go off, which is super annoying, but he did it anyways. He did this for three days and he would write down what he was doing at that moment and how he felt on a scale of like zero to 10. That's what he did. Right. He did it for three days. He didn't look at it. He just did it and would go like that thing for three days. And then he went back and he combined those things together and he looked at it and it was super clear what he was most pissed off about. And that was what he wanted to fix. And so it was like very, it was super clinical. But to your point about it, I think that idea of why you write about journaling and the importance of like capturing, if you don't capture, it's hard to look back and reflect on what it was. Yes. I mean, capturing, that's a good word. For me, a lot, I don't have a very good memory. That's, I wrote it down in my diary. So, you know, (laughs) Sean Connery's in Last Crusade. I wrote it down in my diary so I didn't have to remember it. Yep. That's, to, to me, that was what the blog always was too. It was like, hey, here's this thing that I could go back and scroll and I could click tags and be like, oh yeah, I wrote about that before and that fits in with this thing. So like having some sort of structure where you're collecting and then a way to go back through the stuff. Right. Cause that's something that like writers talk about a lot. They're like, oh, do you keep a, oh yes, I keep a notebook. But no one ever talks about what they do with their notebook. Yeah, Everyone totally talks true. about the importance of writing in notebooks, but no one ever writes about the real, like, what do you do with them? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's reread them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> part of it is part of it is getting down what you think, learning what you know or what you think through the act of writing. But another part of it is the going back, flipping through them, and and figuring out what you want to, what you, where you've been, yep. and what you've been thinking about. Yeah. I'm shocked. I was doing this actually today. I was looking through some of my old notebooks from 10, 13 years ago. I was shocked how many of the same ideas are still. They were there. <laughs> Just dump. It takes a long time. It takes a long time for stuff to come to fruition. So 
yeah, you got to have a system for collecting things and then a system for going back through them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We had uh, Daniel Handler, who's Lemony Snickets, came yeah. and did this. And he was talking about it. He has a notebook. And what he does then is he like photocopies it. He cuts everything. He, he like photocopies it, cuts out all the pieces, and then tastes them on note cards and moves them around. That's his style. And I was, he was like, it's super inefficient, but it's also very efficient. And that's that why like, he gets the big bucks because that's I mean, a really smart so idea. Like 100 million copies of books. Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> so that's a like, really good idea because that is the problem with notebooks is they're linear at a certain yeah. point. That's brilliant. I should do that. That's a good idea. Now, now we got it here. So this has been worth it. Good night, everyone. Everyone, thanks for coming all. We've done our thing here. Yeah, that's really good. But that, I, I would say that's another thing that happens. One reason I like doing stuff like this, and I would encourage people who are thinking about becoming writers. It's a rough road. But it's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. But the one thing that I think will really pull you through is this feeling that it really is a free education that goes on for a lifetime. It really, having your work out in the world, it's just, you just learn crap all the time because Mm -hmm. by having stuff out in the world and by doing, interacting with people, then they give you all sorts of good things. Mm -hmm. And and it's this constant cycle of sharing and learning that Mm -hmm. just keeps happening. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a really, I'm going to write that. Learning is a dialogue, not a monologue. Yes. uh, It certainly is a big one right there. And I think that's why the ethos for me of trying to stay a perpetual student is so important because the dudes, and I'll say dudes because it's mostly dudes who fall into this problem, honestly, is like the the gurus, the guys who are on stage and blah, blah, blah. Those tend to be the people that get stagnant and they don't listen anymore Mm -hmm. and they don't grow. And so to stay open and porous and to take things in, that's just a really important thing. Mm-hmm. And that's where that wanting, that curiosity, that wanting to learn, that wanting to be a student, I think that's where that comes in. So how do you, especially we talk about this sort of, there's this balance here, right? Because there's like the, mm-hmm. the get shit done mindset mixed with this like kind of unstructured curiosity how do you kind of balance that like process to be able to make progress, but yet also not constrain yourselves where you're not in that creative? Is there a way? Is it like, do you, how do you reflect? <laughs> it's, a, it's a complicated question. It's good. So I spend a lot of time now thinking about kids and learning. I have two boys. They're eight and five. Girls, Probably, so we'll have, we'll have to pair them right. up there and then we can. Okay. You know. So... <laughs> which is probably why I'm so glazed over right now. I've been with them all day. I think a lot, so there's, a, there's an interesting book called The Gardener and the Carpenter by Alison Gopnik, and it's a parenting book. She's a psychologist. And the terms she uses for it are really interesting to me. It's exploring versus exploiting. So there's modes in which we're exploring, like our learning is explorative, And then there's modes in which we're exploiting our learning. And I think in another sense, this is like execution versus like research type thing. And I think that it's just seasonal for Hmm. me. It's Mm -hmm. like sometimes you're in that exploring mode and sometimes you're in the exploiting mode. Mm -hmm. And for me though, I think there's a way to balance them. I just try to schedule the exploring mode. Mm-hmm. I try to put time in the day where it's you go to a page 
and you see what happens. Hmm. And that's built into the schedule. And the productivity part of that is just that you did the thing. It's not that there's a product from that. Right. It's just that you did that work. And so that could be anything from doodling in a sketchbook to to just free writing mm-hmm. to in some ways just reading because I think reading is an exploratory. We don't, my, the thing I think that unites all writers are the folks on here. They're mostly writers, right? They're all, almost they're, all of them. They're, they're all writers. Books, yeah. I think this group is all book. Out. We do have a few people who do like audio shows and video courses, yeah. but all writers here. The thing I think that unites all writers is they're just wonderful readers. Mm-hmm. And I think that, You've probably, everyone here has probably been in class, like a writing class where someone says, I don't really like to read, but I love to write. And you're just Mm -hmm. like, you could write that person off completely. (laughs) I've never, I've literally never met a talented, maybe like a talented writer who didn't want to read, but no one that was going to do anything because that's where the, that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, me personally, I don't have any, I don't have any favorite writers. I don't think that aren't prodigious readers Mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. There's a great guy named Ted Goya who writes music criticism and he writes books about music. And he talks about the ratio of input and output. Hmm. And it's staggering how much input he has in his day. Hmm. Something like four to one maybe or, wow. or even five to one input to output. He, he, it's something really high. I'm making those numbers up, but mm-hmm. it's pretty high. And that's something I learned a little bit late in my career is just Stephen King, for example. Stephen King writes for three hours in the morning and mm-hmm. then he reads all afternoon. Mm-hmm. That's what he does. And the, the ratio of input and output for creative people is it can be pretty like skewered. Mm-hmm. And that's probably a little different for like sculptors or artists who really have to spend a lot of, there's a lot of manual work to do. But I think for writers, it's incredible just how much reading you have to do to get good stuff. So that's something to think about when you're first starting out. Are you, is your ratio correct? (laughs) It needs to at least be one to one, if not two to one, you know, I would say input to output. It's an interesting way to think about it too. And and I think part of it, going back to the earlier point about tracking and measuring, like how much time did I do it? It, it, I think that's one of the things we talk a lot about scheduling, like making sure, even if you don't schedule in advance, but go back and track, like how did I schedule my time? Because your point is spot on. And, and I, we, most people, when they start a book in this program, they don't, they're not an expert by any means. They're like right. becoming one by learning. And so everything that you're doing is it's book time, but you're writing maybe, like I said, five to one versus consuming versus creating. Yeah. And like I said, that just took me a while to figure it out. I mm-hmm. thought writers just wrote all day. <laughs> nope. There are amazing writers who only write for an hour a day. Yep. But you write for an hour every day, and that's 365 hours, Mm -hmm. or that's Mm -hmm. 365 pages or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will say when I'm working on my books are like sprints. They're not really marathons. My my books, by the time I have an idea and a proposal for my book, it's pretty much done. It, It just needs me to take, honestly, probably like a month to write it. By the time it's there, but it's the result of... That's you know, lots it's, the, it's lots of stuff. Yeah. It's years yeah. and years of collecting and, and whatever. And I'm pretty, I'm a structure guy. So I really can't even, I can't even really do that much good writing until I have the structure figured out. I just, I, until I see how it all fits in, I would love to be someone who could just write 
mm-hmm. and find places to put, but I, it just doesn't work. For these kinds of books I'm doing, it doesn't work. I don't think it's just you though, actually. I'll tell you, my experience, like 600 authors are still published through this process. The normal message that you hear, if you read Stephen King's book, like on writing, he says right. to write a book, you got to write 500 words a day. It's basically like his message in yeah. it. It's just, it turns out like 25% of people seem to follow that like daily or weekly writing cadence. Mm -hmm. Most people are in the other camp where they're either like a big chunk of people are sporadic where the inspiration strikes and they write a bunch. Another set of people are what we call deadline writers and they're driven a lot by, oh God, there's a deadline of something due and they write that way. But it's interesting to see how those fit. And it's important to remember fiction versus nonfiction. You know, the fiction writer is going to the page to let things happen it's a little bit more in that explore mode. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing that as much when I'm right. writing a book. I'm more exploiting. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, there's a little bit of exploring in there, but it's more I'm trying to nail down what's happening. So that's something. To, and I think the other thing that is so important is to just figure out what works for you and don't yeah. abandon it. Don't because that happens a lot now because process is so popular. When I first started, and I feel a little bit responsible for this, when I first started blogging, people weren't as into process as right. they are. Mm-hmm. Now, it's every time you post something on Instagram, someone's like, what pencil did you use to make that? <laughs> what notebook are you using? Do you, uh, do you, what, did you use Scrivener to do your book? Whatever. Brand for breakfast this morning? Yeah, or did you have yeah, a yogurt? You know, yeah, it's, I think that what a creative person has to do is figure out what works for them. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like reading other people's routines now is not to copy them. It's right. to just see if there's something I can try. What you told me about Daniel Handler photocopying his notebooks, it's that's what I've needed to do all this time. This mm-hmm. It's what I already do. Right. I should do it. It's, oh, that piece will fit. That'll fit into my routine. But it's mm-hmm. not, oh, I read that this artist goes and camps in the desert for six months and then writes yeah. for six months. That's Your boys might like that, though. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. They're indoors, man. They're like me. They like being inside. Indoor kids, right? Indoor kids. So, so you had, you had a, several people. So Chloe, Chris, Mo, and Begonia all asked a similar question that they wanted to hear from you. You talk a lot about the importance of audience, right? There's the, what mm. you think, and there's what the other audience side of things. You talk about like how other people experience your book or experience the creation or whatever it is. How do you encourage people to think about that one? Because it's a really big thing that I think a lot of us, we just think about ourselves. We don't really think about how people experience this. How do you do that? Oh, that's a really good question. It doesn't really, it's only half done when you're done. Mm-hmm. There's, the reader makes the work come alive. Mm-hmm. The book is dead until the reader picks it up and makes mm-hmm. it work. It's frozen. I think Margaret Atwood says it's like frozen sheet music and the reader plays it. And so for me, it's, but it's tricky because on the one hand, that is true. That is the whole picture, but you don't have anything to do with that part. You don't have anything to do with what that person is. Now, it's tricky now because we have the ability to be around all the time in our readers' lives. We can certainly screw with that experience. Mm -hmm. We can certainly screw it up. Mm -hmm. Look at the ways that people have... (laughs) <laughs> torpedoed their careers these days and and you know, most of them tend to be bad men yes. uh, but um, it's like a theme but, running like, here austin <laughs> yeah, it's a bad time to be a bad guy but it's interesting i i don't there's just so you just it's a dance yeah. you're dancing it's, they're a dancing partner 
I don't know. It's although it's almost more like a dance off. I feel <laughs> it's like in Zoolander when uh, walk off. It's a walk off. Yeah, walk off it's here. like you do your move, and then the reader does theirs, and something in in between happens. But I I think that for me, the question always is. I pick someone who's a surrogate for everyone else. For me, it's like my wife. My wife, Meg, reads all the books. She's basically a, a co-editor. Mm-hmm. And she's really the person that if it gets past her, it's good. Mm-hmm. It's worth sharing with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, I think just I've always liked the idea of writing for one person. Hmm. I, I yeah. just think I've always liked the... If you try to, it's the Kurt Vonnegut thing. You open the window, try to make love to the world. You'll catch something. You know? <laughs> but if you just, I don't, know, just, I don't know, that's such a bad, don't forget I said that. Everybody. It's a good analogy, oh. although it's it, creepy, but it's good. It's creepy, but it works. But for me, it's um, picturing one person in your mind and trying to write to them has never really failed me. Yeah. I don't think you got to pick the right person. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. So you've I've got one more question for you, and because I've okay. been super gracious with your time here. So as a lot of authors here are in the process, we talk a little bit about, and this I'm going to plug plug this book a little bit here, showing your work. This idea of you talk about being a documentarian of your life while you're even in the process of writing. What is that like that you see people doing it well out there who are sharing the experience of themselves along the way? Because I think a lot of people, to your point, they might have an audience. And part of the way they build the audience is by showing and sharing along the way. How, how do you see people doing it? Gosh, I think the people who do it well, it's just an authentic. I used to have a problem with that word, authenticity, especially mm-hmm. with art. But there is something about just being authentic about who you are. And like, I've loved Susan Orlean's Twitter outburst recently. Yep. Yes. Because she's added herself as like a... almost like a wine mom. (laughs) And that's great. It works for like, for me, it's she's earned the right to go a little wild on Twitter. But I, I wouldn't say that I'm not sure that people are like reading her more now because she's doing that. It's just Mm -hmm. funny because she's so popular. I think a person that probably I'm trying to think of someone who does it really well, like a writer person probably someone like Ryan Hall in the nonfiction world. I think my friend Ryan Holiday does it really well. He's a machine for this stuff. He's a marketer. So he really, it's, I don't know that it's, it's probably a little bit instinctual and, but like he, like on his Twitter, he barely ever tweets. I tweet about stupid stuff. If you've seen my Twitter feed, that's just, that's part of my deal. A lot of waffle talk on your Twitter. Yeah. Ryan though is, it's only like, quality quotes that he's scheduled mm-hmm. and then like a link to his stuff. And mm-hmm. every day it's, here's a great quote and here's another great quote. And that, and it works really well. And that's his like kind of, Hey, I'm here type thing. And then he's got all this other stuff going on all mm-hmm. the time. So that would be someone I would look at I'm trying to think of a good fiction person. But when it comes to the, it's just all about authenticity. It's all yeah, about who right. you are. Cause I think someone like Patricia Lockwood is hilarious. She's a mm-hmm. poet. And and now she has a novel coming out and she's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And she's, and there, and then I'm trying to think, and there are people who like, 
I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of someone who does it really, who else does it really. Usually there's a frequency thing. Right. Like I think the people who do it really well, they figure out some sort of frequency mm-hmm. where it's okay. They do some sort of regular thing that comes out mm-hmm. at, at a certain time. For example, now I think the smartest writers are the ones with newsletters because agree. social media, Instagram, whatever, Twitter, you can't really control who's seeing only a tiny por- Even if you get lucky and you amass a following, only a tiny portion of those people are seeing uh, right. things anyway. But the people who have newsletters now, that's literally people sign up to hear from you at yeah. a certain frequency. Those people, like someone like Ann Friedman, I think has been really smart with that. There's another one. He's yep. like Mind F yep. Monday. Yep. James Clear, I think, has one. I, I, I'm trying to think of who I, if you go, if you, if y'all who are watching, if you go on my newsletter page on my website and click old newsletters, there's actually, uh, there's one newsletter I did that's all newsletters I read. Really? That's cool. You could click around there and that's people I follow. I always blank when people ask me point blank who's doing it well, but usually I'm... There's people in different fields that do it really well. Like The Rock is someone who everyone should follow. The Rock, like as Dwayne Johnson. Mm -hmm. Everyone should follow him just because... I actually unfollowed him recently just because I was a little tired of the tequila pimping. But like when he was doing movies... He's just someone that's like a natural show your work guy. Yeah, like, he is. Hey guys, you know, we're here on set, you know, of Jumanji Five, and uh, and here's Jack Black. He's good at that, but you can always find a way to do it. It the great thing about watching something that you think isn't your taste or isn't for you is that you can always find something to steal from it, though. That's right. So yeah, you like combine I, these. Two. Show your steel. Is that how we like steal your work? Like we gotta combine the two here now. It's yeah, it is. And they're supposed to talk to each other. I wasn't sure that there was going to be a third book in the trilogy. Hmm. Steel show was supposed to be a show was supposed to be. They were supposed to be a loop where it's like mm-hmm. you steal and then you show. You steal mm-hmm. and then you share, and then you steal what people share with you, and it's mm-hmm. like this perpetual thing. But always steal. That's. I will that's my big don't be afraid to take people's moves I there's a woman named Laura Olin whose newsletter I love and it's a ripoff of mine it's there's a big there's a big picture at the top and there's mm-hmm. a list of 10 things and then she says bye mm-hmm. that's what I've been doing all these times and mm-hmm. she took that format and it's great it's mm-hmm. wonderful because mm-hmm. it's her mm-hmm. and she, but it wouldn't work if she was just some, if she didn't have great taste and right. if she wasn't right. interested in interesting things, it wouldn't be a great newsletter just because she stole the 10 points thing. It, it would just be, eh. And yeah. people always forget that is, is how much your, how much your job as a writer is to cultivate, to cultivate a point of view, yeah. to be someone worth reading to make work that's worth reading. It, the coldest advice I ever heard from a writer ever was from Donald Barthelme. And this student came to him and was like, I don't know, this story just doesn't. And he looked at it and he's like, have you ever tried, consider, have you ever considered making yourself a more interesting person? <laughs> and it was like, that's the coldest crap I've ever, this is the coldest burn I've ever heard. <laughs> there, is a, there is a sense in that, in that, 
the way to become interesting is to be interested. Yeah. It's, it's not like you go out and get funny hats and mm-hmm. dress in different colors. It's, mm-hmm. You have to be interested and in, in, you have to project interest yep. out into the world and then pull it in and process it in a way that's interesting to other people. Hi, I'm uh, Hi. such a big fan of your books, and uh, I carrying them around with me is how much they've um, really been great in just getting when I'm getting stuck and stuff. But I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how to build more consistency. I find that that to be very difficult. With what? With writing or yeah, or with writing. Life? Just whether it's okay. you know newsletter or blogging. It just I find yeah. like maybe I do two days and then suddenly you oh know, yeah flies by. I I find promises just like you say okay this is a daily blog or this is a weekly hmm. newsletter. Just having a deadline and saying that for yourself. I think, I think free, so there, one of my favorite, one of my favorite stories and who the hell knows if it's true or not. It's from Art and Fear, that, that book by David Bales, I think, and Ted Orlean, I think it's his name. And they tell the story about a pottery class and half the class is told, make the best pot you can and turn it in at the end of the, at the end of the semester. The other part of the class is you will be, the other people will be graded on the quality of their pots of the pot they bring at the end. You, y'all will be graded on how many pots you can make. Hmm. So make, and of course what happens at the end is the people that make as many pots as they can, those pots tend to be of a higher quality of people <laughs> who just work on one pot. I, this sound, it sounds like counterintuitive, but for me, for example, when I was working on Keep Going, I told myself, I'm going to blog every day again, like the old days. I'm just going to do a blog post every day. And sure enough, like I ended up with so much, so many good posts that I couldn't fit them in the newsletter some Hmm. weeks. There were, so it's, it's just that repetition doing something. So I, I think just setting, I think it's about frequency. I think frequency often leads to consistency, if that makes sense. So it's just like, setting a goal or setting setting some sort of deadline and maybe even doing it so that you're accountable to someone. Because I find that if you announce something in public, for example, it's, oh, I have to be held to this. I, I think that's my, I just think showing up at a, at a certain frequency, I think that for me leads to consistency. Thank you. Like sure. Heather asked a good question on here about, Heather wants to come on and ask it, but I'll tee it up a little bit here about quitting things. Obviously, so I'll let you ask the yeah. question. Here. Yeah, you're known for being good at editing stuff, right? Your poetry and just striking things out. So Mary Kondo style, what has bring, bring you the most joy, like pure unadulterated joy that you've given up, quit, struck, has freed you up to do the creative work? Ooh, oh, I like that phone in the morning not looking at your phone in the morning will change your life i i haven't been able to do it recently <laughs> but, uh, but i gave that every time i do that's like getting that's like getting off candy that's like that will taking the first hour of your day and not spending it on your phone that is something that i and cuz it feels fun when you're doing it but man, that changed my life. What else have I given up? I don't really give up that much. I don't really, I'm not, I guess I'm not, 
great at quitting. Where have I quit lately? I don't oh my know. God, I, don't meet your heroes. Part of, the, part of the problem is, part of the problem for me is that I don't have any hobbies. I don't really have much of a life. I have my kids and I have the work and I have my family and the work and it's, what else would I cut out? <laughs> I don't do that much other than this. What else did I cut? But I'll think I'll probably remember the minute we sign off. I'll think of something else. Honestly, I think if I quit Twitter, I'd be a lot happier. Uh, here, I'll Personally. cheers you on that one. <laughs> I know what I'd be happier if I quit. I'm just not ready to yet. That's I'd right. be happier if I didn't eat so much. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, Mo has a good question about design and art in your process here. Mo, you uh-huh. want to ask the question? Yeah, I have your book with me right here. Hey. I've had it for a few years now, but I think something that's helped me with the writing process is because I love multimedia. I'm not just a work person. I like pictures and cartoons and I made zines before joining this fellowship. And I'm just really curious how that informed your writing. If it did, uh, if it was like you wrote first and began to implement other illustrations and so on. Yeah, great question. I really didn't do any good writing until I let pictures back into my life. Hmm. And I was actually just looking at notebooks today and and thinking about how that's really... You can tell when I'm cooking, like when you flip through my diaries, when there's more pictures than words, that's actually when like a lot is happening Mm -hmm. in a good way. So for me, it was comics when I like really fell in because when I was growing up, it was newspaper comics. I just loved like, I loved Garfield and junk like that. And peanuts when I was growing up, Calvin Hobbes, far side. I love newspaper collections. That's actually my favorite Mm -hmm. genre of book is collected newspaper strips. I think there's something really magical about how like you can fit two or three comic strips on one page, but then you can read the whole year. Like those peanuts, like year long collections for me, or that's just, that is so chewy and wonderful. I love those. But when I discovered comics, like later in life, when I was like in college and like Chris Ware had just done like Jimmy Corrigan and Art Spiegelman and Linda Berry and all those great cartoonists. When I found comics, when I found the world of comics, I was like, okay. And even though I don't do comics now, like you might see a comic in like one of the books, even though I don't do comics now, I think everything I've learned from reading comics about how pictures and words can play together just informs all my stuff. Mm -hmm. And I do usually on the blog tend to write to images. Like I'll dump a bunch of images in the blog and then I'll write to the images. You'll do it simultaneously? Yeah. And then, but weirdly, I don't do that. The books Hmm. happen. There's more of, they feel more like a script. And then I I just go through my gigantic archive of stuff and I just find images that'll fit. I don't know how many images I actually made for Keep Going. Um, I think a lot of that was stuff I already had Hmm. that I had made. So usually, so that's weird. Yeah, like the books start more like words first. And then the 
but the blog it's almost more like i have an image first and then i so it's weird i don't know it's but that that's how it works anyway i think zines though now that you mentioned zines i think that's a great way like if y'all are blocked or something i started doing this in quarantine I'll, i'll just show you this real quick when quarantine started i started doing these little zines let me find one here these little like handmade booklets. Can you guys see that? Mm -hmm. Wow. It's called how to draw what is invisible. And I just cut up old books and what it's real simple. You take a piece of paper and you fold it in half, uh, fold it in half again, fold it in half again. And then when it's unfolded, you fold it in half here and tear it. And then you can just fold it back again into a booklet format. And you can see how to do this on my website. Mm-hmm. Just type in zines or whatever. But then you just make a book. So if you, there's a wonderful um, cartoonist named Malika Garib who's doing these. And she just does these tiny little zines and then she'll just pick a topic and just write about it. And there's only three spreads. There's one, two, three, front cover and back cover. And this mm-hmm. is a wonderful way to get like, unstuck but i do crazy i've done all kinds of stuff like i i do th- these are all the these are all the zines i've done during quarantine hmm. and so i would definitely recommend that as a i like to cut up peanuts i do these things called nutso zines i don't know if you guys can see this yep yep that's out of peanut strips and i turn charlie brown's head upside down so he looks real crazy and i make my own I make my own dialogue and stuff. So anyway, I think any little project you can find that's anything that you can do in like a sitting. I like those kinds of projects. I like daily projects I can do in a sitting. Whether it's like one of those blackout poems that you saw or like just a page in a sketchbook or a zine or whatever. I, I feel daily project that like keeps me sharp and then I can work on my other stuff. And then if you suck on your other stuff for the day, you're like, at least I made this funky little thing. So maybe we've got one more question here. From, so Chloe asks about, I'll let her ask it, but I was going to maybe have you talk a little bit about as a parent with kids growing up in this world a little bit and how they approach creativity. Maybe think about that. Chloe, I'll let you ask your question, but thinking about the future of creativity. Yes. Thank you so much. So show your work was something that was brought up in my graduate seminar for fiction. So I was introduced to it in that sense. And I think what I'm trying to write about is perfectionism and creativity, because I think there's, Mm -hmm. with social media, a lot of availability for people to find outlets to show their creativity or to feel that creativity is possible for their everyday lives. And yet there is also this imposter syndrome and huge bouts of like crippling oh my gosh, what am I doing? I can never live up to XYZ person. So I'd be really interested because there are such positive and negative consequences of social media alone. What do you think the trend will be in maybe like 20 years for people who are trying to get into creative fields? It'll be what food you can scrape out of. No, um, I'm sorry. I feel like just like 20 years, the fires will be burning out in the field. No, um, <laughs> just landing on Mars I, at that point. Yeah. I feel like I just think the trend will be people. I just don't think that people will ever go away. I feel personally that when I find a writer I love, it's like making a new friend. I don't want to sound like Holden Caulfield, but I do feel like 
when I find a writer I love, it's a lot about hearing a voice and being with a voice. And when I find an artist I love, it's like a hand or a set of eyeballs that see things that I want to see. And I just, I think that the human element will always be what is valuable about our work because it won't really be, I just AI stuff. I'm like, you can make content that way, (laughs) but can you make something that lasts? Can you make something that connects with people? I just think that, I think it'll go more towards, for better or worse, I think it will continue to want people. And so I think that, I think that won't go out of style. That human element of here's a person who you hear it from other authors off the people who get really popular. I feel like they have readers who say, you said what I always wanted to say, or you said what I've been saying for years and now it's in a book. And so I feel validated. That's really something that I think you hear a lot when you stand in like signing lines for authors this kind of feeling that I thought it was just me. Hmm. I think that is really the connection that people feel. And I just don't think that'll go out of style. So I'm always pushing when I'm thinking about my sons and they're both pretty creative and, and they, I'm thinking about their futures and I'm like, you just, you keep being that you keep serving yourself up in a way that, that, I think the challenge will be not to be a performing monkey, to not just be a, because they watch, they watch these awful gaming videos where there's some nerdy guy talking while they play video games. And I never feel so old as when I watch these videos. (laughs) Cause I just feel like it's like watching CNN. It's like, somebody just filling an airtime. They just, it's like a lot, it's like watching the election where it was like people just like saying things and it was like no information. It was just like, it was just like chatter. So I'm just always, I don't want, I don't want, and those guys make so much money. <laughs> it's so hard for me. I'm just like, oh my God, my kids are watching this YouTube gamer and he's got like a $3 million house in LA. <laughs> and I'm sitting here trying to feed the... No, what I'm saying is, uh, is to just, to do work that makes the world a little bit better. Hmm. And I don't want to, I'm not judging anyone. I know gaming does wonderful things for people. But for me... At the end of the day, it's, I, I want to, I want them to be privately happy and publicly useful. I, I want them to advance. I want them to try to create some little thing that advances us a little bit forward. But I also, I'm trying to be a curious elder. I'm trying not to be that grumpy guy like, why are you watching these stupid gaming videos, blah, blah. I'm trying to figure out what is it about this? Because I think of a gaming video and I'm thinking, shoot, I should just have a YouTube stream where I make a collage and people watch me and I babble on some video. Oh, here we go. I don't know. Can I steal? But that's the thing, right? That's to to pull the conversation back around to the beginning where we were talking about being a perpetual student, being a perpetual learner. Mm -hmm. What can I learn from these? Obviously, there's some weird thing that's happening with my kids watching these videos, what is it? 
what is happening here? Mm -hmm. And can I steal something from it? Is Mm -hmm. there any value to it? So that's the thing. And I think that my mom used to have this saying when I was a kid, she used to say garbage in and garbage out. And I used to get so, oh, mom, garbage in, garbage out. And it's funny because programmers use that language a lot. I found out later, like computer programmers, if you have junk code, you'll get a junk program. Mm -hmm. But now it's funny because as creative people, I'm like, the world is mostly garbage. It's, there's a lot of garbage out there. So part of the job of the creative person, I think, is to become a refinery, is mm-hmm. to look at the trash, to filter it through your sense, take in some of this garbage. I think like George Saunders is a wonderful example of that. Someone who is like, he's ingested all this bad corporate speak and this really junky language and has found a way to spit it out in his fiction into these beautiful stories. I think the artists, I think good artists do that. They, they find the gems for us. They filter it and they serve it back to us in a way that's interesting. So now, I've, now I almost think of myself, I don't know if you guys have seen Back to the Future 2, but Doc Brown, he shows up with, that, with the car and, and he's put a Mr. Fusion in there and he's, he dumps all the trash in the Mr. Fusion and then the Mr. Fusion like turns into energy. I'm like, okay, that's part of my job now is like to look at this trash and to try to do something with it, but to also look for the good stuff too. Anyway, that was a really long answer. So thank you again, Austin, so much. This is great. So any last words of wisdom for these folks going out and creating these books? And we're going to do something cool. We're going to send you, we're going to let them send you signed copies of their book when they're done to show the impact you've made down the road. So you'll get some more stuff to put in your office. Any last words of wisdom for these crew as they're out there uh, creating for the world, they're fusioning it. I really, I, I, Dolly Parton said, figure out who you are and do it on purpose. Hmm. And I, I was doing, I did this interview with my middle school art teacher and she told, I asked her if she had a piece of advice for other art teachers. And she said, be yourself in front of the students and love what you do and whatever. And I was going to be yourself. Everyone says that. But I really think when you get right down to it, figuring out who you are and doing it on purpose, hmm. that is really, you just, because that's what people want. They want some sort of authentic, they want the truth. People want some sort of truthful interaction, I think, at hmm. the end of the day from creative work. I, as much as people love lies in this culture right now, <laughs> I think at the end of the day, if you want to have a lasting career, if you want to do this indefinitely, you just have to figure out who you are and do it on purpose. What is your, what's your little thing? What's, and, but, and to be kind. I just think that I, there's a thing in Steal Like an Artist that I would change. Well, there's lots of things in Steal Like an Artist I would change, but there's a chapter called be nice. It's a small world or it's a small, the world is a small town. Mm-hmm. Be kind. Kindness is different than being nice. Hmm. And I guess I'll leave it there, but just have fun. <laughs> that's the other thing I'd say is have fun. If it's not fun, don't do it. Like, cause it's too hard. It's too yeah. hard. It's too hard to be a writer. If it's not fun, if at least part of it doesn't really make you the strings go, it's just too hard. Do something else or do it for fun. I don't want to talk anybody out of anything, but I just feel like in this culture right now, there's too much, there's too many people saying you can do it no matter what. It's like, it should be fun. Part of it should be fun. It shouldn't all be work. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. all be like, do your 500 words a day. (laughs) Part of it should be fun. If you're not having fun with it, it's hard for the reader to have fun with it. You know? 
appreciate you for being ultimate, ultimately kind, by the way. And uh, we'll give you a big round of applause. Thank you very much. Enjoy dinner this evening. Uh, Thank we appreciate you. appreciate you for spending the time with us. Awesome. I like your it. Time. Bye, y'all. All right. Thank you.